0: Michael, we're always grateful when you're here. The two hours fly by, take it away.
1: Right. Okay. Do you want to read the first
0: question to make it a little easier for me? Yeah. First question is, dear Michael, my question uh, who's this from? Robert H. Is there a Robert H. here? Not always are people here, but they see the recording. That's another thing that you who are new should know, that uh, several weeks after this uh, program today, Michael puts up the recordings on YouTube under his name, right, Michael? Michael
1: James? Uh, no, it goes under the name of Sri Ramana Teachings is the name of the channel.
0: Okay, Sri Ramana Teachings. I find it by going, because I can never remember long titles like that. <laughs> 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 titles. I, I remember by just going to Michael James on YouTube, and it pops right, right up that way right. as well. My question has to do with whether the world is real or not. Some Ramana people say it's all an illusion, that nothing exists except pure awareness. Others say they believe Ramana has said the world is real, which is correct. There is a Ramana quote that speaks to this in Talk 33 from the book Talks with Sri Ramana Maharshi. That lesson is a little unclear for me. And ironically, the group just got done reading that very quote, maybe two weeks ago on a Sunday morning. That's the book we're reading for right now. Okay, so there's the question, Michael. What's your answer? Okay. Um, Firstly,
1: regarding Talks 33, as with many things recorded in talks, it's not very clear. Um, When Bhagavan spoke, that is, clarity and simplicity is the hallmark of Bhagavan's teachings. But many things in talks are not very clear because what the recorder of talks was recording was what he remembered and what he understood. So, um, but I'll talk more about that. So it's not surprising, but uh, Robert says, that lesson is a little unclear for me. But let's first deal with the question, uh, whether the world is real or not. Bhagavan said the world is unreal. Also, in some contexts, he said the world is real. So, the world is both real and unreal, but we need to understand the sense in which he says that. Just to illustrate it with an example, if you see a, a, a rope and mistake it to be a snake, is the snake real or not? As a snake, it is unreal. As a rope, it is real. That is why Bhagavan sometimes said it is real, sometimes said it is unreal. Um, The world as world is unreal. The world as its underlying substance, namely Brahman, our own real nature, is real. Um, That is what Bhagavan is, the gist of what Bhagavan is saying in Talk 33. And he said that on many occasions, but as I say, it's not very well recorded. Um, But let's go into this a little bit more deeply. When we talk about real, firstly, we need to understand what we mean by real. That is, the general supposition is that the world is real. That is what what most people assume. It's what we naturally believe. But in in Bhagavan's teachings and in uh, uh, Advaita philosophy more generally, what is meant by real and what is meant by unreal? Mm real means what actually exists. Unreal means what doesn't actually exist, even though it may seem to exist. So, the the snake doesn't actually exist. It seems to exist, but it doesn't actually exist. So, it is unreal. But it seems to exist because of some underlying uh, ground. That underlying ground is the rope. It's the rope which we mistake to be a snake. So, Likewise, for this world, there is an underlying ground, an underlying substratum or substance that we see as this world. That is ourself. That is real. Ourself means what we actually are, not ourself as the person we take ourselves to be, but ourself as, as we actually are. That is real. Um, and so with this understanding that in this context, in the context of Bhagavan's teaching, real means what actually exists, unreal means what doesn't actually exist, even if it seems to exist. So with this understanding, what were the defining characteristics of what is real, according to Bhagavan? He gave three defining characteristics. Firstly, what is real must always exist because if something exists at one time and not at another time as bhagavan said it doesn't actually exist even when it seems to exist there's a this this is a very um deep philosophical point in advaita it is mentioned by krishna in the bhagavad gita in chapter 2 uh verse 16 of the bhagavad gita krishna says there is no um there is no existence of what it doesn't exist. And there is no non-existence of what does exist. So what does that mean? If there's no existence, if there's no non-existence of what exists, that means what exists must always exist. And if there's no um, existence of what doesn't exist, that means anything that exists for some time and not at another time doesn't actually exist. So that is what Bhagavan taught. So to be real, something must be eternal. There's also a reason for this. If if something is intrinsically existent, it exists independent of all external um, circumstances. So it exists always because it's intrinsically existent. But if something seems to exist at one time and not at another time, then it is not intrinsically existent. It borrows its exist, its semi-existence from something else. In, well, how Bhagavan ex, explained this is all phenomena, all that everything but that we, we perceive or are aware of, everything that we experience exists only in the view of ourselves as ego. When we rise as ego, <coughs>
0: sorry. Um <laughs> i I, um, I wanted to point out that he revealed to us uh when we started well, we only had half as many people as we have now that <laughs> he's suffering from an accident he had where his vertebrae uh has been challenged and coughing is extraordinarily painful so take your time michael we all understand we've all been there yeah
1: <laughs> so it's just one of the things this is not real this pain is not real because it comes and it goes. So according to Bhagavan, it is not real. Yeah. Um, that is, uh, I was explaining about why, um, oh, about, what it, about intrinsic existence. Uh, what Bhagavan explained about this is all objects of phenomena, in other words, everything other than ourself, exists in the view of ourself as ego. When we rise as ego in waking or dream, we see the appearance of other things. So but, but the world, whether the world in this present state or in any dream, the world always seems to be real, so long as we're experiencing it. Um, so, uh, but it seems real because we have risen as ego. In sleep, when we don't rise as ego, we are not aware of anything other than our own being. I am. um. All, all phenomena disappear. Why? Because phenomena are objects. Ego is the subject. Objects exist only in the view of a subject. So objects borrow their seeming existence from the seeming existence of ourself as a subject, namely as ego. And even ego doesn't always exist. It exists in waking and dream, or it seems to exist in waking and dream, but it doesn't exist in sleep. That means it doesn't actually exist. So from what does ego borrow its semi-existence? It borrows its semi-existence from what is called sat-chit. Sat-chit means sat is pure being, chit is pure awareness, which are one and the same. That is what we actually are, pure being, pure awareness. That is what we experience as I am. So as ego we are always aware of ourselves as I am. We're aware of ourselves as I am now in this uh, waking state. We're aware of ourselves as I am in uh, in dream, and we're aware of ourselves as I am in um, in sleep. But the difference is in waking and dream, we're we're aware of ourselves as I am, but we're not just aware of ourselves as I am. We're aware of ourselves as I am this body. I am this person. I am Michael or whoever, I'm Ted or, who, or Robert or whoever it may be, I, we, we identify ourselves with a person. A person means a body consisting of a, a body that is, it, it is said, five sheaths. The five sheaths are the physical form of the body, the prana or the life that animates the body. In other words, all the physiological functions in the body the mind. In this context, mind means the grosser functions of the mind, the perceptions, memories, thoughts, feelings, emotions, and so on. Uh, That's the third one. The fourth one is intellect, the judging, discriminating, discerning um, element of the mind. And the fifth one, the subtlest of all, is the uh, what is called the karana sarira, the causal body. That is all our vasanas. Uh, our vasanas means our inclinations, our volitional inclinations, our inclination to like this, dislike that, desire this, uh, be averse to that. These are uh, these are the, uh, because these are the seeds that give rise to everything else. The, the totality of all those vasanas is called the karana sarira, which means causal body, because it's the cause of everything else. So these five, um, mind, sorry, body, life, mind, intellect, and will, uh, these uh, uh, these five constitute the person we take ourselves to be. But ego is not any of these five. Ego is that which takes all these five to be itself. So as ego, we're aware of ourselves as I am this body, in which the term body includes all these five, uh, because we never experience a dead body as ourself. It's always a living body. And we never experience a sleeping body as ourself. It's always a body that seems to be awake. So the life is there in the body and the mind, intellect, and will are functioning in it. So we always experience these five together. Collectively, we experience them as, uh, as ourselves i am sitting refers to the body i am breathing refers to the prana of a life i am thinking refers to the mind i am judging refers to intellect i like i dislike i want refers to the, the um to the will but all these five we experience collectively as ourselves um, we don't take ourselves to be five parts though we we these are five aspects of what we take ourselves to be um, so as I say, as ego, we're always aware of ourselves as I am this body. So but what we actually are, such it, the pure awareness, pure being, is aware of its itself as nothing other than I am. When we rise as ego, we mix and conflate ourselves with a set of adjuncts, namely these five sheaths called body. Um and it's only when we take ourselves to be this bo- a body that we are consequently aware of other things. So the world exists only in the view of ego. And e- so the world borrows its semi-existence from the semi-existence of ourself as ego. And ego borrows its existence from I am. That is, we, we cannot be aware of ourself as I am Michael, or I am Ted, or I am Robert, or I am anyone else without being aware of ourself as I am. Awareness of ourself as I am is awareness of our being. Awareness of ourself as I am this or I am that is an identity, that there's a distinction. So the the reality of ego is the pure awareness, the pure being, I am. So that is the only thing that is ever existing, but it exists and shines in all the three states. So that alone is real. That is why in uh, Nana, Who Am I?, Bhagavan says in the seventh paragraph, he begins the seventh paragraph by saying, uh, yatatamai mandre. That means what actually exists is only apma sarupa. Atma means oneself, sarupa means the real nature. So the real nature of ourself, in other words, our own real nature, what we actually are, that alone is what actually exists. Um, and the nature of that is that pure is such a pure being, pure awareness. And it's ever, ever shiny, ever experienced as I am, as our own being. Um, so because I am alone is what exists always, it alone is real. The the subject, namely ego, and all the objects, namely all the phenomena, they the phenomena derive, the objects derive their semi-existence from the semi-existence of ego. Ego derives its semi-existence from the real existence of ourself, as we actually are. So, um, as I say, one of the first definition that one gives of what is real, but first, not even definition, defining characteristic or lakshana of what is real is it must be permanent, eternal. It must never cease to exist it cannot anything that comes into existence and goes out of and ceases to exist is a is uh is not intrinsically existent it borrows it's borrowing its existence from something else um so first characteristics of what is real it must be permanent second permanent means throughout time and also beyond time because time itself is something that appears and disappears. So it it transcends time, Um, and being that which transcends time, it's imminent in all times. So first characteristic is eternal. Second is unchanging, because anything that changes is one thing at one time and another thing at another time. Some few years hence, uh, sorry, a few years uh, previously, we were small children. And as small children, our bodies were small, not fully developed, our minds were uh, the things that interested us the things that um that we knew were very limited compared to what we in uh, to what we know now so in in the course of time we've un- this person we take ourselves to be has undergone so many changes, and a few years hence, this person is going to um croak or kick the bucket or whatever you want to say it's going to say goodbye and it's going to go away and it's going to be put in a fire or uh, in a hole in the ground and that's the end of the person we take ourselves to be so this is not what we actually are so the, this anything that undergoes change is impermanent because at one time we were children we are no longer children so our state our existence as a child has now ceased to exist. Now we exist as an adult. So both our existence as a child and our existence as an adult is unreal. And now we, are, we, we exist as I am this body. But in sleep, we're not aware of this body. So all of this is, is, is ever-changing and, unre- and therefore unreal. And the third and most important of the three characteristics of what is r- real is what is called in Sanskrit swayam prakasa. Swayam prakasa means self shining. That means it, what is real must know itself by its own light of awareness. It, it shouldn't depend upon anything else either to know it or to enable it to, <coughs> to know itself. So, um, eternal, unchanging, and self-shining. These are the three characteristics of what is real. Is there anything in this world that is eternal, unchanging, or self-shining? No. Some people may say, oh, the sun is self-shining. It shines by its own light. But it doesn't—that that is not the meaning of swayam prakasa. swayam prakasa doesn't mean self-shining in a physical sense. It means in a its own existence must shine to itself. The sun doesn't know its existence. But the sun doesn't know I am shining. The sun is, is just a, a physical object. It has no awareness. In fact, all no physical things have awareness. Now we we because we take ourselves to be a body, we think this body is aware, but this and this mind is aware. But actually, they're all objects. They are not aware of their own existence. What is aware of this body and what is aware of the mind is ego, that which identifies itself with these. So because we identify ourselves with the body and mind, the body and mind seem to us to be aware. But actually, it's not the body and mind that are aware, it's we who are aware. So physical things, in fact, all objects are are jada, they are devoid of awareness. Um, Ego... Is a mixture of what is um, of, of awareness and what is not aware. Because ego is the false awareness. I am this body. The I am portion is the awareness, the awareness of our own existence. The the uh, the body is just an, is is insentient. It it is devoid of awareness. Um, so. Uh, the world as world, as a as a as a collection of many objects, it's unreal, because the truth is one of the fundamental principles of Advaita. In fact, one of the fundamental principles of Vedanta, in the Upanishads, it said, "Ekam eva one only without a second. This is the foundational principle of Advaita. So, there's only, what actually exists is only one thing but then how to explain all this multiplicity? We see a world full of so many different objects, trees, and uh, oceans, and roads, and cars, and houses, and mountains, and all sorts of things they constitute this world. It's a, it's a collection, it's a multitude of phenomena constitute the world. So, this the it, our experience of this world seems to contradict the truth of Advaita, because how can you say there's only one thing when we see there are so obviously so many things? So the answer from Advaita is, it is all an appearance, a, an illusory appearance, a false appearance. It's not real. It just appears to be so. And Bhagavad, that is the, the, the classical answer of Advaita. Bhagavan, because Bhagavan's teachings are extremely practical, Bhagavan goes one step further. He says, yes, all this is just an illusory appearance, but to whom does it appear? It appears only to us as ego. It's only when we rise as ego that this world seems to exist. So the the basis for for the appearance of the world is our rising as ego. So if we are troubled by all the... The sufferings and everything the strife and uh, wars and famines and death and disease and all these uh things that we see in the world that, that all these things appear because we've risen as ego so the, the 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 root cause of all our problems is our rising as ego this is what bhagavan has taught us so and ego is what ego is a false awareness of ourselves as ego we're aware of ourselves as I am, but not just I am. We're aware of ourselves as I am this body. Because we're aware of ourselves as I am this body, there seem to be so many other things in our view. So um, the, the, the ego is a false awareness of ourselves, an awareness of ourself as something other than what we actually are. So, how can we get rid of this ego, this false awareness, only by correct awareness, by knowing ourselves as we actually are? In other words, by knowing who am I, this is why Bhagavan's teaching is to investigate and know who am I. To investigate ourselves by looking deep within ourselves to see what we actually are, to see beyond all these adjuncts, these um, the outer layers that we take ourselves to be, to see deep into our being, to see ourselves as we actually are. That is the aim of Bhagavan's teachings. So, why does Bhagavan say the world is unreal? is it just some some hypothetical philosophy? No, it has a practical significance. Because so long as we take all this multiplicity to be real, our mind will be going out after it. So we need to be willing to accept that what is real is only ourselves. Since what we are all seeking is happiness, happiness cannot lie in what is unreal, in what is transient. Supposing you think Happiness lies in accumulating a lot of money or uh, gaining name and fame or being particularly good at some sport or in some intellectual activity or being very learned. People seek happiness in so many different things. But all these things are transient. Even if you amass all the wealth in the world. All the name and fame, all the political power, all the learning and whatever you, you want. Supposing you accumulate it all. What's going to happen when you die? You're going to have to say goodbye to it all. So it's all transient. And so we need to recognize this. But if we, if we are serious about being happy, we shouldn't look for happiness in ephemeral things. We should look for happiness in that which is eternal. And what is eternal is only our own being. So there's a very good reason, it's a practi- that is all of Bhagavan's teachings are practical. So there's a practical reason why Bhagavan says this world is unreal. Why then does he sometimes say it's real? Because what we are seeing as this world is only ourself. When we are dreaming, for example, we see a whole world. What is, that? What is the world we see? It, it, it is the dreaming mind is seeing itself as the dream world. The, the the world has no existence independent of the mind. Likewise, this world has no in, existence independent of ourselves. So the the world borrows its semi existence from ego, the knower of the world, and ego borrows its semi existence from Atmasarupa, our own real nature. So ultimately, what everything is, is only atma rupa What seems now to us to be a world full of so many different objects and events and time and space and all these things, this is all nothing but ourself. So if we know ourself as we actually are, then what we now see as a world of many objects, we will see as ourself the one pure satchit. So as satchit, As pure being, pure awareness, this world is real. As something other than ourself, it is unreal. So that is why Bhagavan sometimes, I mean, generally Bhagavan said the world is unreal. But in some context, he said it is real. What he meant by saying it is real is not that the the, the names and forms are real, not that all the objects are real, but that the underlying reality is real, the underlying substratum is real. And just like it's like saying the, the the rope. Sorry, the snake is unreal as a snake. It is real as a rope. Um, so this is why Bhagavan sometimes says it's an illusion. Sometimes says it is uh, it is real. So, but this is where it's very important to understand the basic principles of Bhagavan's teachings, because then things that may at first seem contradictory. We will then see in the, understand in the proper context, and we will understand how, in what sense the world is uh, real and in what sense it is unreal. Um, regarding this passage of talks, this uh, passage, uh, this uh, section thirty-three in talks. Um, nowadays, in recent editions, they call it talk but it was originally just, it was they were just section numbers, but now they, they call them talks. I mean, each, each section they call a talk. Um, there are many things here that aren't clear, um, but just to illustrate how this is definitely not exactly what Bhagavan say, said, because it is recorded here as if Bhagavan said, they say that they reflected uh Adhyasika reality admits of, of degrees which are named vivaharika Satya. Vivaharika Satya means the transactional reality. In other words, our day to day reality. That is, <clears throat> this world is unreal. But if you're hungry and, and uh, you eat food, the food will satisfy your hunger. Both the food and your hunger are both unreal. The body that is experiencing the hunger is unreal. But they're on the same level. Likewise in a dream. If you feel hungry in a dream and you eat dream food, the dream food will satisfy your dream hunger. So that's called vivaharika satya. Pratibhasika satya means seeming reality. In some... uh, because Advaita has to cater for people at many different levels of understanding, many different explanations are given. So people who can't understand the deeper explanations have to be given more superficial explanations. So sometimes it is said, dream is pratipasika satya, it's a seeming reality. Waking is vivaharika satya, it is a, a transactional reality, it's somehow more real than dream. and. Um, our real state is Paramataka Satya, but Bhagavan's, uh, Bhagavan made it very clear wake, this waking state is no more real than a dream. So what we now take to be vivaharikasatya, Satya, uh, transactional reality, is actually par- pratibhasika Satya. It's just a seeming reality. It's not actually real at all. And then the third one listed here is uh, paramatica Satya. paramatica Satya means the ultimate truth. But it's it, It's recorded here as if Bhagavan said that the reflected reality admits of degrees, and this is one of the degrees of reflected reality. How can the ultimate reality be a degree of reflected reality? So, from if we read talks carefully, we can see so many inconsistencies and um, contradictions. So, This person who recorded talks, he recorded what he understood, but often it is not what Bhagavan meant. And it's very clear here that that is not what Bhagavan meant. Yeah. So does anyone have any uh, questions on this
0: particular subject? Why don't we hold off on the questions on this subject until we get your answer to the second question, which is uniquely related to it by another person. Is that okay with you? And then you can, yeah, um,
2: fine.
0: and, and um, I would guess for those people who are new here, they're getting a dose of what it's like to ask Michael a question. He gives short shrift to no questions. He always gives very thorough answers and they're very satisfying. So thank you for that. Let me just get into the second question and then we'll take uh, some questions from the floor if it's okay, so to speak. This one is from Joan of Indio, California, up the street about three hours from Coronado. Michael, I cannot find it, and it's very much related to it, so there'll be some overlapping here. Michael, I cannot find a satisfactory answer to this question. Can you help me? I understand the concept that no world exists. There is no mind. There are no people. There are no thoughts that are real, just emptiness and that in that void there is only eternal awareness. Here's my question. In that perfect, timeless awareness, where does maya, where does illusion, the dream of human life, come from? How does it spring up? And why would it ever arise? What purpose is served by the dream? And a P.S. question here on the way out, Michael. Is this the most difficult Ramana belief To accept for any of us, that life is illusory. This world seems to exist, all all this
1: maya seems to exist in whose view? It seems to exist only in the view of ourself as ego. So Bhagavan said, what is called maya is actually nothing but ego. So um, the, the question, where does maya... Uh, uh, come in. Maya is ego. That is why is ego. Why is ego called Maya? Maya is a Sanskrit word, but means um, it's generally translated as illusory or delusion or whatever. But the etymological meaning of Maya is Yama. Yama means she who is not. So Maya doesn't actually exist. Uh, Maya is ego. It is ego that causes the appearance of all these things because all the everything is just a dream. And the dreamer is ego. So the cause of all these things is ego. But then the questioner uh, is often asked: then why did this ego ever arise? What is the purpose of this ego? Um, there, when people ask Bhagavan such questions, he said that is the wrong question to ask. First, find out what this ego actually is. If you find out what ego actually is, you will find there's no such thing at all. We seem to be ego only so long as we're looking at other things. But if we turn our attention back to ourselves, has anyone ever seen ego? Has anyone ever found such a thing called ego? So sometimes Bhagavan used to say, first you find that e- this ego and bring it to me, and then we can find out uh, how it came into existence, why it came into existence, what its purpose is. But first you have to find it. And if we look for it, it will disappear because we seem, ego is is just a, a seeming existence. We seem to be ego so long as we are attending to things other than ourselves. To the extent to which we turn our attention back on ourselves, ego subsides and dissolves back into its source. And eventually, we see there's no such thing as ego at all. When you see a a, a rope and mistake it to be a snake, you mistake it to be a snake because you haven't looked at it carefully enough. If you look at it carefully enough, what will you see? Oh, it's not a snake. It's a rope. It's only a rope. Then, so the, the 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 metaphorically speaking, we can say the way to kill that snake is to look at it carefully. Because if you look at it carefully, you'll find there's no such thing at all. Likewise with ego. But many people misunderstand this. They say, "Oh, uh, 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 Ramana Maharshi has said there's no such thing as ego. Then we shouldn't worry about this ego." They, they don't, have, we need to have a, a clear and comprehensive understanding of Bhagavan teaching. Bhagavan says, ego is ultimately not real, but ego is the cause for everything else, because it's only in the view of ourself as ego that all other things uh, seem to exist. So, so long as we are aware of body and world and all these things, we who are aware of these things are ego. But we seem to be ego because we're looking at those other things instead of looking at ourselves. If we look at ourselves, this ego will disappear. So the reason why Bhagavan said asking why or how or uh, for what purpose is like asking, uh, how was the son of a barren woman born? Why was the son of a barren woman born? What's the purpose of the son of a barren woman? All such questions are meaningless for the simple reason but the, the son of a barren woman is a logical impossibility. If a woman is barren, she that means she has no sons or daughters. If if she has a son or daughter, then she's not barren. So if the son of a barren woman is like a square circle or a circular square. They, they're, it, it's a contradictory concept. So this this ego and world. Is ultimately as unreal as the son of a barren woman. It just doesn't exist. Now it's the, the son of a barren woman cannot even seem to exist. But ego does seem to exist until we investigate it. So asking uh how does it come into existence? Why does it come into existence is like asking how was the son of a barren woman born? Um uh, uh, uh um uh, 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 uh uh, why was the son of a barren woman born? First, we need to examine the very concept of the son of a barren woman. If we consider the concept, then it'll be clear. Any questions you ask are meaningless because there's no such thing as the son of a barren woman. So the only useful question to ask about this ego is who am I or what am I? Asking uh, how did I raise this ego? Why did I raise this ego? is, is we, we are giving... a undue reality to ego. We are assuming that ego actually exists. First, we need to... That's why Bhagwan used to say, in his own joking way, he used to say, first you find this ego and bring it to me. Then we can consider all these other questions. Because he knows very well no one one could ever find ego. Because ego is not an object. Ego is the subject. And we seem to be the subject only so long as we're looking at other things. We look at ourselves, we will recognize ourselves to be pure awareness. That is why Bhagavan's teachings are all focused on this practice, this simple practice of self investigation, turning our attention back to ourselves to see what we actually are. Um, and regarding this uh, question, finally, is this the most difficult Ramana belief to accept for any of us illusory beings? Um, some people just can't accept these such uh, ideas. Even um, many among Bhagavan's uh, devotees, they really don't pay attention to Bhagavan's teaching. They don't pay close attention. For them, Bhagavan is God. They believe if they, if they worship God, if they worship Bhagavan, he will bless them, he will take care of all their needs, of their family, of everything. So they, they worship him as a god. But if we want to be truly benefited I mean, of course, such people are benefited by Bhagavan. Bhagavan is God, there's no doubt about it, but um, uh, that is not the real benefit. More than God, Bhagavan is Guru. The function of Guru is greater than the function of God. The function of God is to fulfill all our prayers and to take care of us and everything. The function of Guru is to put an end to the whole problem, the root cause of the problem, which is ego. So Bhagavan is first and foremost uh, guru. And if we are ready to take Bhagavan as guru, that means we have to follow his teachings. And we cannot follow his teachings unless we're willing to accept them. If we're not willing to accept them, Bhagavan will never force. That's why many times when people question Bhagavan, the answers he gives are not his pure teachings. Because if, if he sees that someone is not ready to accept his pure teachings, He's not going to insist that they should accept. So he will say things in a way. Uh, yes, the world is real and it's also unreal. Um, he he will he will put it in a way to satisfy them because he knows they're not ready to uh, swallow the bitter medicine. But if we are serious about following Bhagavan's teachings, it's not actually difficult for us to accept that all this is a dream, because there's nothing that we experience in this waking state. But we don't experience in, but we couldn't experience in a dream. So there's no there's absolutely no evidence in our present state that this is anything other than a dream. So accepting it as a dream is not actually difficult if we are willing to do so. But uh, from a majority of people they would be unwilling to accept that that's fine because we are all on a spiritual journey we're at different stages in our spiritual journey so if we see devotees of bhagavan who are not yet ready to accept his teachings we shouldn't we shouldn't be perturbed by it we should understand yes they are at their level bhagavan is taking care of them at their own level he was just like he is brought us to accept these things. He will bring others to accept these things in due course when they're ready for it.
0: Michael, can we get to a couple of questions on what you've been talking about right now? Yes, certainly. Rest your throat for a second. Uh, I I just want to add before we get to Leah, who had her hand up, I think, first here, and she's here waiting to talk. Uh, It's my experience even in this group. I mean, in Sai Baba groups and all sorts of groups, Course in Miracles groups, Many people would come to this basic understanding of Maya—that the world, let alone your mind, let alone your thoughts, are illusory—and it was just too steep of a hill to climb. They, they just yeah. bowed gracefully. Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: But, that's fine. That's fine. Why are there so many different religions? Why are there so many different, even within uh, Vedanta, there yes. are so many different forms of Absolutely. Vedanta because it's suited to people at different levels of spiritual development. Why are there some different forms of Christianity, of Islam, of Buddhism, of all these religions, because not everyone is ready to accept the same things. Some people are deeper in following their a particular path. Other people are more superficial.
0: Yeah, and and it's just only... the
1: nature of things. But that doesn't mean that we are all progressing. We're all on a journey, and it can take a while. It's taken it me. It can 30. take a while. And take a while means it can take many, many lives.
0: <laughs> Illusory lifetimes, yes. Yeah, yeah, okay, exactly, exactly. Down. Leah, Leah uh, what's on your mind? Uh,
2: thanks, Ted, and um, just thanks for the meeting. And um, Michael, thanks for the opportunity to be able to ask the question. Um, as I was asking the question, um, predictably so, you answered it. And um, so I realized who's asking. And I should probably just stop right there, and that could be the end of any further. <laughs> well,
0: do you
1: have there's any no har- harm in asking if you think I, I, it may get bring some further clarification.
2: The 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 I'm compelled to ask them: What the hell is the point of all of this? This life, right. and and excuse the language, but but it, you know, I, so I get the letter of the law. I understand. There's yeah. no. The, the rational mind, what this, whatever, blah, blah, blah. I'm not going to get yeah. caught up in the, the semantics. Yeah. Of course, you know, the, the, it would be great to have a nice experience. I, 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 there's no selling me on this. I'm, I'm crossed, I'm past the, I got placed over the threshold where yeah. I have no choice now but to live this way. Yeah. So Ramana's way, I have no choice. But what the hell do I do now?
1: Okay, um firstly let us let us not give priority to questions like why or what is the purpose or any of these things there's a nice story told by Buddha A, a man was hit by a poisoned arrow. The surgeon wanted to remove the poisoned arrow, but the man was insisting, "Who was it who shot me? What type of arrow was this, did he used? Why did he shoot me?" All these questions can be left, kept for later. First, deal with the problem. There's a poisoned arrow in your body. First, it needs to be removed quickly, or you're going to it's going to finish you. So, we, if we are serious in the spiritual path, we can put all questions about why or and so on. We can put them aside. First, let us try and solve this problem. We have a problem. Now, we take ourselves to be a person. And as a person, we have so many limitations, and we we all know embodied existence is imperfect. We are born, we grow up, we go through so many experiences at school, then adulthood, marriage, children, all these things we go through, and eventually we grow old, we get sick, and we die. So this is an inherently unsatisfactory situation in which we find ourselves. So let us deal with the problem rather than being concerned about why or how or anything. What is in... We experience... Bhagavan often used to say when we... we this isn't the cause for all this, but Bhagavan said the reason why ego seems to exist is because of avichara. Avichara means non-investigation. Because we haven't investigated ourselves, we seem to be ego. That, of course, doesn't mean that avichara is the cause for the rising of ego, because who who is it who is not investigating it themselves? It is ego. So the, the non-investigation cannot be the cause, but why ego is sustained, why ego is still here now, is because we haven't investigated it keenly enough. So, and the solution is to investigate ourselves. All other uh, uh, philosophical question can wait. It, it, otherwise, we can go on endlessly discussing. This is how philosophy becomes extremely complex. Bhagavan's philosophy is very simple, because Bhagavan focused on solving the problem. He, firstly, he had diagnosed what is the root cause of, that is a good doctor, will not be satisfied merely with treating the symptoms. But a really good doctor will find out the root cause of the problem and will uh, treat that root cause. So Bhagavan has identified the root cause of all problems is our rising as ego. And the sol- because the ego is a false awareness of ourself, the solution, the antidote for this poison called ego is self-knowledge, knowing ourself as we actually are. And we can know ourselves as we actually are only by investigating ourself. Is that a satisfactory answer or not?
2: I'm entertained that you... Ha- Ask me that. Yes, of
1: course. <laughs> yes. Of <laughs> Some course. people Thank are you. satisfied if they're serious in the following this path. They're satisfied by such. Some people are not satisfied. They'll go on and on and on asking, and there's no end to even Bhagavan cannot satisfy such people because there's no there's no satisfactory answer to why or how. Because they, well, just like, there's I'm no satisfactory is... answer to why or how the son of a barren woman was born. Yeah. No.
2: Um. I i realize that intellect and and um, self knowledge avails me nothing mm. you know that 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 I- intellect only... is
1: useful but we need to use mm-hmm. our intellect wisely mm-hmm. that is intellect okay. is in the ability to discern to distinguish we need to distinguish what is useful to do and what is not useful so even um, the... we need to use our intellect to understand the wise way of using our intellect. Many people have brilliant intellects, but they use it for all sorts of unnecessary things. So, Uh, uh, intellect is important, because with intellect comes understanding. We need to understand. How can we follow this path if we don't understand it? But we we need to keep our intellect in check. We need to use our intellect for what is useful.
2: Um, it, it, for me, it's a balance of intellect and humility. And so, yes, the, the, this person has some intellect and some pursuit and some seeking and that's great. But, but I, I, I'm, I'm also was put over the threshold of now balancing that with humility and, and, and a lot of curiosity and open-mindedness and, um, it's, yeah, um, I, I, i I'm, I think. I think part of what this. What this is is. It's. It's also looking for maybe some relief, um, because this is taxing to be in this space, <laughs> of oh, to get to ask. It's less taxing than it was before, yeah. where I didn't get to ask who is this. Yeah. But I'm in this space of seeing, getting glimpses of seeing what this is, and it's exhausting.
0: Yeah. 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 So, I, Leah, thank you very much for the question and the follow up questions. And, and Michael, before we move on, I see Melissa's got her hand up. I want to say only that I've asked that very question, Leah, that you've posed at the end there. What's it all about? What the hell is it all about? Uh, to, you know, being a reporter for 44 years where I actually derived a paycheck, I feel like I'm a reporter now for the last 12 years doing these interviews with people, many, not many of whom, but maybe. Uh, Almost a dozen people are thought to be a, a self-awakened, uh, s- self-realized, in the flow, however the term of the day reflects where they are right now. And I'm thinking about you as well, Leah. And what they tell me is a direct answer to the question I pose to them, is that they feel there is value in just being. They don't go around sharing. They're not. Uh, they don't proselytize. But when people see that there's something different going on in an awakened being or those who are presumed to be that way, and they ask questions, these people chime in and help. Almost everyone says the same thing: I don't bring up the subject, I don't talk about myself. It's not in my best interest to do that. I'm grateful for where I am, and I think it's just my presence in the community that can be of service to anybody who might notice the difference. Uh, so I would say just hang in there because. You do that to this group on a regular basis, Melissa. You've got a question.
3: Yes. Hi. Thank you. <clears throat> um, um. So, uh, yes, not exactly a question, or well, I guess there is a little question in it. But uh, first, I just wanted to offer uh, to Michael a suggestion about your about the coughing. Um, I'm a retired physician and. This is just just a little um, uh, a, a small suggestion you might find uh, helpful uh, when you feel the, the the tickle of the of the cough ar- um, k- arising um, uh, sip uh, drink something that is carbonated like ginger ale or seven up that has those bubbles because the bubbles actually will um, they will uh, like uh, um, they they get to the to the tickle that you can't get to because you can't go down your throat to get at it so you might just try that um yeah it it, it's remarkably effective um uh oh anyway so okay so that that's just a little (laughs) suggestion okay and and just keep it next to you you know and every so often take a little sip of it and and it (laughs) will It should help you. Um, uh, so, uh, thank you very much for this teaching about real. Um, I, I have to say that this is becoming completely, absolutely clear, crystal clear, and and it is a revelation. It is just it's just amazing. Um, uh, the the recognition that. The real is a very is is defined in a very special way in Advaita. Um, it, it's not the common way that we think of real. And if we if we look at the, the 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 concept of real in the way that Advaita is pointing us, recognizing that is that it is pointing to the birthless, deathless, unchanging. That which is ever-present and that which is self-shining, self, chi- self shining, meaning not dependent on anything else, that, that is like, it's like a doorway opening up when, when we realize that. Um, and, and, and for me, what became really the key element was that recognizing that everything that that appears for me is appearing in my awareness. So everything that appears is dependent on awareness. In other words, satchit, and of course, it's, it's dependent on being. I, I mean, there has to be a being. There has to be. Yes. Yes. There has to be. Can you put this into a question for Michael. Uh, well. Uh, okay. So. So. Um. It, uh, so the, the the being of awareness. It, everything is dependent on that. And when we and when we know that, then suddenly it, it, everything shifts. It's a whole. It's a whole different reality that we are seeing. So this is this is. Um, This is, it's just a small question. It doesn't, it almost doesn't matter. Um, But um, my, my, my current um, uh, Karana guru, um, uh, my, my teacher who has helped me to, to recognize this truth, these truths, or this truth, I should say, um, has suggested that that th- what we see in a dream, in a sleeping dream, shall we say, what we see in a sleeping dream, or you might say in a hallucination or in a delirium, you know, which I, as a retired physician, I know what those are. Um, what we see in that is a kind of a dream within a dream. So our waking, our waking appearance is a dream. It, it is not as real as Sat Chit because it de- is dependent on Sat Chit for its reality. It borrows from Sat Chit for its reality. But the sleeping dream or the hallucination or the delusion is a dream within a dream. So it's at, at an even less real, so to speak. It's, you might say that there are many levels of reality there is the, the the waking dream which is which is not totally real, and then there is there is the sleeping dream, which is an even lower level of reality, so to speak, it is even less real. And and the highest level of reality that we can know, at least as far as we know, is is what is pointed to as satshit, the the awareness being that we really are.
0: Melissa, we so, need a question because... That's we, my
3: question. That was my question. So yeah, that, that all I'm yeah. asking then of Michael right. is, can we say then that the sleeping dream is even less real than the waking dream, which is of course less real than awareness being such it? That's, that's my um, question.
1: According to Bhagavan, this present dream is as unreal as any other dream. There is no distinction in reality between... Th- that is, and even to talk of different levels of reality, there is only one thing that is actually real. All the other things that are called this vivaharika satya, pratibhasika satya, these are not real at all. They are just seeming, what seems to be real. Um,
3: uh, well, but it, it, I'm... Let me, let me clarify. So, thank you. I I, I I I know that, and I understand that. the 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 reason why it may be confusing sometimes to people is because um, the waking dream, the wake the waking dream that we have, it seems to have more, shall we say, persistence. It has more continuity. You know, when we when we wake from a sleeping dream, we wake up to pretty much the same waking appearance, day after day, after day, after day, after day. So that becomes confusing. Um, Then people say, well, how could it not be real? Because it seems to persist day after day, after day, after day, after day. But to think of it as as, as having, whereas you can't go back, you know, when you fall asleep again, you can't go back to the same dream. That you were in the night before, so in that sense, the sleeping dream has even less reality because of the less persistence than the waking let's, let's dream. Let
0: uh, Michael answer. Okay. He was in the middle of a, answering the question. Okay. So sure. a, but it, I okay.
3: just wanted to. Yeah, to I I,
0: I
1: understand okay. what you're saying, but Bhagavan okay. said about this. This seems to be the case from the perspective of the waking state, but when we are dreaming, we, it seems to us that we are awake. And what, what, what gives us the sense of continuity in this state? Because we have memories. We remember what happened yesterday. We remember what happened last year. We remember what happened 10 years ago. Of course, as further back, the memories get uh, uh, less and less clear. But we remember back as far as our childhood, when you are dreaming, you can also remember your childhood. You can also remember what you did yesterday. So, the, the memory is what gives the sense of continuity, that the, the same memories persist in the waking, in the dream state. Of course, some dreams were a little bit befuddled, but generally speaking, the same memories, we remember uh, in a dream. If someone asks you, what school did you go to? Richard, yes, which yes, yes did you yes. go to? You will remember all those things, and you'll there's
3: say There's
0: one you'll
3: other thing. R- R- um Yes, thank you, thank you, um, Michael. Yes, that, I, I do see what you're pointing to. There's one we're other. going to go on to Mukta right now because oh, we. Wait, to... wait, wait. There, there's just one other aspect of okay, this. Take it briefly. There's, there's the um, uh, one other thing that makes the the waking dream a, a, at a little bit. Uh, uh, quote unquote, more real is the intersubjective agreement that you and me and uh, and Ted and every, you know, we all have a, a level of agreement about the waking dream. Um, whereas our personal, our sleeping dreams are entirely, uh, you know, without, within our own mind. So that also adds to the quote unquote, Uh, uh, quote, unquote, a little bit higher level of reality, but still not the pure reality of Sat Chit.
1: But the same intersubjective confirmation we find in dream. If you ask people in a dream, are you seeing this? Do you see this world when I'm asleep? They'll say yes. So you can derive exactly the same confirmation from the people in your dream that you derive from the people in this dream. So this again, Bhagavan, All these things have been um, have been discussed, and Bhagavan points out. But whatever you may say, we can point out the same thing in dream. There is, hmm. there is no,
3: okay, no. Yes, yes, I see what you're saying. But um, from, from yeah, the awesome. perspective of right. this
1: waking state, this seems to be more real than the dreams we have at night. But if we were having this conversation in a dream, who knows? Maybe we're having this conversation, um, maybe we've gone asleep and we're having this conversation in the, in our dream at night. It, but, but exactly the same things we would be saying. I would be saying the same things. You would be saying the same things. Ted would be saying the same things.
0: Moxie is new, and I want to welcome you. And Mukta, I'm going to get to you after we get to Moxie, because he has an interesting question that he sent to me not so long ago. And it's on the list there, Michael. It has to do with Bodhisattva. And Maxi, I wanted to know if you want to ask the question yourself of Michael. Uh, that's all right. If you, if you want to read it, that's fine. OK, I'll read it quick. <laughs> and the concept of Bodhisattva, and for those that weren't quite familiar with it, uh, the person postpones their own liberation and purposely chooses to reincarnate for the benefit of helping others. <laughs> uh, is the concept of bodhisattva, um, is it something that reconciles with Bhagavan's teachings? While the compassionate intention is appealing, it seems to me, Moxie says, that it would require maintaining at least some ego to pull this off, whereas my understanding is that Bhagavan said one's own self-realization, the end of ego is the greatest help one can give others. Michael.
1: Uh, Moxie, I think you have to some extent answered your own question. Um, Yeah, I think that the way you frame the question, it's clear that you understand the answer, at least to some extent. Um, This concept of bodhisattva, it is a a nice religious belief. Um, There are so many beliefs in religion, but in different religions. Every religion has its own particular um uh, characteristic set of beliefs this Bodhisattva belief is a very central belief in Tibetan Buddhism. but it is this i what i would what I would guess is that this belief grew up to satisfy people who weren't going so deep into the philosophy or practice. Of the original teachings, um, it it it's an, it's, it seems to be a nice ideal to have compassion for others and to um, and to uh, uh, seek to help others before helping oneself. But actually, if we consider the life of Buddha, what happened in the case of the life of Buddha? Buddha was born as a prince. When he was very young. Uh his father consulted some astrologers about the future of his son. And the astrologers said, Your son will either become a great emperor or a great renunciate. So, of course, as a as a king, his father wanted his son to become a um a great emperor. That's the natural um parents tend to want their children to uh go in their own footsteps because they, they think they are deriving happiness from their particular chosen path in life. So they think the same path in life will make their children happy. So his father didn't want Buddha to uh, become a renunciate. So he tried to protect him from from all things that would give him the uh, inclination to become a renunciate. So basically, he gave him he arranged his life in such a way that he was uh, shielded from all forms of suffering, you know, even seeing suffering. So, he grew up to a, a young man, or young probably in those days as a teenager. He would have been married to um, uh, a girl a few years younger than him. She was probably the, the daughter of a neighboring king, so probably a princess. And they got married, and they had a child. Um, and one day, Buddha uh, wanted to see the outside world. So he called his charioteer uh, to take him out uh, to see the outside world. And when he went out in his chariot, he saw people who were sick. He saw people who were old. He saw people who had died and would be, everyone was weeping and carrying them to the cremation ground. So he asked, what is all this? What is happening? This is, wh- why, why this is all happening in our kingdom? Why is my father not preventing all these things? Then he was told, disease is a fact of life. Everyone, get, that everyone is liable to suffer from disease. If we live long enough, we will sooner or later reach old age, and eventually we will die. Whether we die at a young age or old age, eventually death will come to all of us. So these are the very nature of life. So Buddha then thought to himself, He had so much love for his wife and for his newborn child. But how could he protect them from these inevitable um, consequences of embodied existence? Then he thought deeply about the matter, and he thought, there's no material solution to these. Even if I become a very powerful uh, king or emperor and provide everything they want, How can I protect them from disease? How can I protect them from old age? How can I protect them from death? These things are inevitable. So there has to be some, I have to find the solution to these things. There has to be some deeper purpose in life, some deeper, there has to be some way of solving this. So he he left um, his status as a prince, and he went out as a wandering monk, looking for a way to put an end to suffering. And eventually, we all know he, he got enlightened and everything, and he, he, taught, uh, he taught others, he helped to save so many others. So this, this, why is this bodhisattva I- ideal, is the ultimate ideal, why didn't Buddha remain as a bodhisattva? Why did he, he, uh, he go to full extent and become enlightened? So this shows, this is, this is, this is what happens in religion, beliefs build up over time. So this is not the deepest um, teaching. I, I we, as you say, we we can understand the compassionate intent, and we can that in, com, compassionate intent is appealing. Um, bodhisattva means one with a pure mind, pure uh, intellect, or uh, who sees things clearly. But if we really see things clearly, that itself is the death of ego, and. Um, if we view it in the light of Bhagavan's teachings, why does Bhagavan say our own self-realization is the greatest help we can give to others? Because according to Bhagavan, this whole life is just a dream. If you see suffering in a dream, if you see wars, if you see pandemics, if you see um, people suffering from disease or poverty, and you see a world full of injustice, with some people with billions of dollars and other people with um, with nothing. People who struggle to um, make ends meet, to feed their family, to heat their homes in the winter, and so on and so forth. Which is the reality, even in even in the so-called advanced society, advanced economies of the Western world. So many people are suffering from poverty. Um, maybe not as severe as in other parts of the world, but there's still poverty in the midst of so much wealth. So we see that that is is the nature of life. All these injustices and so on, it's all part of this dream. So in, in a dream, if you see all these things, Naturally, you feel compassionate when you see people being bombed by a foreign country. When you see people not having enough to buy food for their children. When you see people uh, suffering from cancer or some pandemic or whatever it is, we naturally feel compassion. We naturally feel for we we. It hurts us to see other people suffering. This is the natural condition of anyone with a with a at least a moderate degree of purity of mind, you feel compassionate for others. It's natural. So what in a dream, if you see all so much suffering, what is the greatest good you can do? If you see people who are hungry, you may be able to offer them food. If you see people who are sick, you may be able to take them to hospital and help to to have them treated or whatever. But there are so many problems in the world. How can you solve all these problems? There is a simple solution, Bhagavan says. Since all this is a dream, it all exists only in the view of the dreamer. So if you, the dreamer, who is seeing all this, wake up, that is the greatest good you can do to the world. Because when you wake up, that means not wake up just from the dream, but wake up from the underlying ignorance that gives rise to the dream. The ignorance are, called ego. Ego itself is ignorant because it's a false awareness. I am this body. I am this person. So if, if we eradicate ego, then the ego is the dreamer. So when dreamer goes, the dream goes. When, when the dreamer ceases to exist, the dream, all dreams will also cease to exist. The very possibility of a dream will cease to exist in the absence of dreamer. So as Bhagavan said, our own self-realization, the eradication of our own ego, that is the greatest good we can do to the world. We can solve all the problems of the world simply by knowing ourselves as we actually are. Does that mean to stand by and do nothing then? No, of course. If, someone, if you're walking down the street and you see a person who's hungry and you've got food, you, you give them food. That is, There's no wrong in... in Oh, not, not only that, there are so many ways we can help others. Supposing someone comes to you in distress, sometimes just listening to a person uh, of uh, lending a sympathetic ear, um, that can help people. There are so many ways in which we can help people. But these helps are all very trivial. Of course, when we're going outwards and we see others suffering, we we should do what we can. But it shouldn't be the aim of our life. Because if it's the aim of our life, we are just perpetuating the dream. The, the real solution is to wake up from a dream.
0: So as one awakens... is that the to... no satisfactory answer? I, I think it is. I mean, I think you've just... Given yes. A answer. Yeah, a thank word you. Word. I think I was trying to reconcile things that just are not reconcilable.
1: Yeah, but not... Um, and we, like we shouldn't... We shouldn't... We shouldn't be um, perturbed by these things, because it's natural in every religion. There are different levels of belief suited to people at different levels of spiritual maturity. So this bodhisattva idea, it's a very nice idea at a certain level. Um, And it's it's very much, it's it's such an intricate part of the Tibetan Buddhist culture. They revere those they consider to be bodhisattvas, those like Dalai Lama and other uh, uh, people they consider to be incarnate lamas and so on. That's all good. It's all. It's all. um, Of course, those who are considered to be uh, bodhisattvas, those who are considered to be incarnations of. previous uh, great souls, they had to live up to that ideal. It doesn't always happen, unfortunately. That's the trouble with all these things. Um, we, we often fail to live up to the ideals that we, we profess to believe in. But, so, we have all due respect for the Tibetan Buddhist religion. There are many, many very nice features it has. It's, uh, it's a very nice culture in many ways, but it's not the deepest truth.
0: Moxie, is that it, or do you have a follow-up? No, that's it. Thank you so much. And thanks for coming. I hope you enjoy and come back from time to time to join us. Uh, and and uh, Michael's here every first Sunday of every month, I want to point out. Mukta, your patience is admirable. What's your question for Michael?
4: Give me one second. I typed it up, and I'm just like, okay. okay. Um, it's... Uh, yeah, this question is definitely coming from an area of understanding because I do believe and I, I, I strongly that we're, I'm not my body or thoughts or feelings and I'm that pure awareness and that is what everybody is. But the thing is, when I discussed with a friend, <coughs> it came up that Hey, my purpose is just to because the question of purpose of life came up and I was like, okay, are we just here to just eat, sleep, uh, live, work, die, you know, Um, and things like that. And that person's answer simply was, hey, I'm I'm doing what I like to do and I'm here to experience life and things like that. Right. Um, So my question is, is it enough we know that there is a witness in us? Which is there, which of course so many masters in the past have told, in, um, definitely Ramana Maharishi has said that. And is, is that enough, or um, to understand that, or we have to completely be established in the self, knowing that we definitely are not, or in other words, we are not reacting to our thoughts or feelings or anything, mm. um, and we are just responding, or um, because it's like, Uh, if you're not bothered by our mind is that okay because if we let it only bother us because the whole purpose here i'm seeing is or the challenge i'm seeing in me and other few others is that the frustration that comes that you're not able to get there or something like that then then is it like worth it oh can i just live my life simply like okay i'm just like dealing with whatever comes in life and then just being the best I can be and just, you know, going about it (laughs) because it's because the whole point looks like it's about being unreactive. And if you're being reactive to that, hey, it's not working or it's not, why am I bothered by my mind and this and that, the the thoughts that keep going on loop, then there's no point, right? Like the whole point we're doing. The self inquiry is to be not bothered. In that case, only it makes me think how about there are people who are living life with not accumulating impressions and not really being egoistic, but they don't have the awareness of this knowledge or anything, but simply they're just being that way. And I've seen people like that too. So, um,
0: let's see what Michael says to you. Okay.
1: Um, yes, some people think. But they're happy with their life. But they're content doing whatever they're doing. But it is because they haven't reflected deeply enough. If we think about it, this ego existence is a very unsatisfactory state. Because when we rise as ego, we're aware of ourselves as I am this body. So we are limiting ourselves within. We are limiting ourselves in space just to be this um, five to six feet of body and we're limiting ourselves in um, time just to some 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years we don't know how long Some for some people it's only one or two years so the, our, our life we know is 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 spatially uh, limited it is temporally limited that is limited in time it's limited in space and the, the most of all, our real nature, as Bhagavan has, uh, has pointed out to us, our real nature is infinite happiness. As this finite being that we now take ourselves to be, we cannot experience that infinite happiness. So, because we have seemingly separated ourselves, from the infinite happiness that we actually are, nothing in this world satisfies us. Whatever we get, we want something more. Every movement of our mind, every effort we make, is driven by this search for happiness. If we were truly content, we wouldn't even feel inclined to think anything, just let things happen as they're meant to happen. It wouldn't concern us at all. But of course, we're all concerned because I am this body, So since I'm this body, I need food, I need clothing, I need shelter when I have injury, I need to go to hospital, I need medicines, I need this, I need that. We are taking so much care of this person, but we take ourselves to be, because we experience this person as I. That is, if we are honest with our experience, what is our experience? I am this body. We know from from thinking carefully about Bhagavan's teachings, we know this is not. The case. We are not, this body is not what we actually are. But our experience is, I am this body. So this is an extremely unsatisfactory state. Dissatisfaction is the very nature of ego. Dissatisfaction is what is called in Sanskrit dukkha. Sukha means satisfaction. Dukkha means dissatisfaction. That is why all the great sages have said. Buddha and so many others have said, "The nature of embodied existence is dukkha that is it is we are all dissatisfied. We are all seeking something. every movement of our mind is a search for happiness in something other than ourselves. so those who who don't think deeply about these things, they may think they're living a happy life, but then one day. What's going to happen? A doctor will tell them they've got cancer, or a doctor will tell them that their husband or wife or their children or their parents have cancer, or some they're going to be bereaved. That is, we we live in a fool's paradise if we think this life is all going hunky dory. But there is not a single soul in this world, whether human or non human, who lives a content, a perfectly contented, happy life. We may sometimes lull ourselves into a a, a belief that we are happy and contented, but that's very fleeting happiness and con- a, a little upset in our life, and then we again recognize the unsatisfactory nature of, of embodied existence. So we have to use our judgment. Those who wish to live in the fool's paradise, let them. We we shouldn't disturb others. One of the things that is said in Gita, you should not disturb the faith of others. So if someone has belief in material existence and they believe the material existence makes them happy, let them believe that. Sooner or later, they will find out for themselves. Sooner or later, they'll come to recognize that. But we have to address our own problem. We have to be realistic with ourselves. Can we be satisfied just living the life that it may satisfy others? If it satisfies others, we're happy for them. But does it satisfy us? Are you you satisfied with your present condition? Ask yourself. You don't have to answer to me, but you have to ask yourself. If you're not satisfied, then we need to go deeper. And ultimately, what is the root cause of all dissatisfaction is our rising as ego. So how to put an end to this rising of ego? So that's why following Bhagavan's path, that is the wise option. Not everyone is going to take this option. We shouldn't be concerned because they are not, if they don't, if this path doesn't appeal to them, that means they're not yet ready for it. So Bhagavan is infinitely patient. He, he bides his time, uh, but he's doing his work slowly slowly preparing us so once we are drawn to bhagavan we are drawn to bhagavan because we recognize the unsatisfactory nature of this life we try we are seeking something deeper how deep we go is up to us that we have to decide for ourselves
4: sorry to interrupt michael so is so for me let me ask that is that enough because i'm i'm i truly believe and is that enough that I know I'm not my body or thoughts or feelings and I'm awareness, or that should be established in the experience because I can be aware of that I'm not that and I can just live my life regularly and not be bothered by the rest and only go into self-inquiry when I'm bothered or something like that. Or does it make sense what I'm trying to ask? It, It makes
1: sense, but do you really know you are not the body? You understand that you are not the body because you've read Bhagavan's teaching, but your experience is still I am the body. Where are you? You're in a certain place. You're sitting on a chair. You're looking at a P, that is our whole life is centered around this identification of ourselves with this body. And body, remember, in Bhagavan's teaching, when Bhagavan talks about body, he's talking about all the five sheaths. As he says in verse 5 of Ulu Dunaplu, uru Pancha Koza So this, when Bhagavan says, ego is the false awareness, I am this body, what he means by body is not just the physical body, but all the five sheaths. We are so intimately linked to this. This is what is called Chit Jada Granti. Jada is all these adjuncts, the five sheaths. Chit is the, uh, is the fundamental awareness I am. Ego is this not this entanglement of these two elements. Of course, Chit is never entangled, but in the view of ego, we Chit seem to be entangled. So it's of course it's not satisfactory to say I'm not uh, I, uh, to just to uh, to understand theoretically I'm not this body. If you're in pain, what use is it? No, of course we we can get a certain detachment from the understanding, but it doesn't go very far. We, if the pain comes, we feel pain. However, however much theoretical knowledge we have. It doesn't, that is why the practice is all important. And um, I, what you were saying earlier, I couldn't hear all of it because I was coughing, so it was a little difficult. I muted my mic so the coughing wouldn't interrupt. But I think what you were saying was something about being a witness.
3: Mm-hmm. This
1: is something that there's a lot of misunderstanding about. The word sakshi, is used in many texts. Sakshi means witness. Bhagavan clarified the word Sakshi is to be understood in two senses, and we need to understand from the context which sense the word Sakshi has been used. The general meaning of Sakshi, witness, Sakshi means witness, the general meaning of Sakshi is that which knows. In that sense, ego is the Sakshi. That which knows all these other things is ego. However, it's rather confusingly in some texts, Brahman or our real nature is referred to as Sava Sakshi, the witness of all, or as Jiva Sakshi, the witness of Jiva. How is that to be understood? Bhagavan said in that sense, Sakshi means sanity. In other words, witness means presence. Because it's not that Brahman is knowing this everything, or Brahman is know, knowing the jiva. Brahman does know everything, because it, when it is said, Brahman knows everything, what it means is, Brahman knows itself, the only thing. It doesn't know all this multiplicity. All this multiplicity exists only in the view of ego. Which is why Bhagavan says in verse 13 of Uludhanapattu, nānava jnanam Knowledge of multiplicity is ignorance. So, what knows multiplicity is only ego. So, if by witness you mean that which knows all this, it is ego. We are witnessing all these things all the time. Why then is it said, why then is it so often said that we are the witness? There's a reason for this. Because, as ego, we identify ourselves with these five sheaths. The, the body, life, mind, intellect, and will. We identify ourselves with these things. But we, we are taught to distinguish the seer from the seen, the, the, the knower from the known, the experiencer from the experience, the perceiver from what is perceived. So we are not any of these five sheaves. We are that which knows all these five sheaves. So the term "witness" is used to help us separate ourselves, in, to, to it's separate us. ourselves, not ex, it's separate in ourselves our not, understanding. It's only when we understand, that, understand that we are not understand. any of these things, we are That's that which knows all these things. True. We are a witness yeah. of all these That's things, then we know what to investigate. i part once the part of Atma means self-investigation. Oh, in Tamil he said tannatam, it means the same. How do we investigate ourselves? Only by attending to ourselves. But we first have to understand what we mean by ourselves. If I take myself to be this body, I can sit in front of a mirror all day and say, I'm, I'm, I, I'm following Ramana Maharshi's teachings, I'm practicing self-investigation, I'm attending to myself. That is obviously not what Bhagavan means. Other people would think, oh, I w- I, I'm a witness of the thoughts, but the thoughts are not ourself. The thoughts are something other than ourself. So the reason we are, it is pointed out where we are witness, is we are not any of these things perceived. We are the perceiver of them. So what we need to investigate is ourself as the perceiver, not ourself as any of these things. So the, the this is the big problem with Advaita and why, Bhagavan, it was necessary for Bhagavan to come, because the practical implication of Advaita has over time been lost and forgotten. Nobody really knows. You you can listen to lectures on on Advaita from very learned uh, uh, pundits and uh, sannyasis and so on. They can talk for years and years and years, but do they clearly point out the practice Whereas Bhagavan's teachings are all centered on the practice. The practice is attending to ourself. By attending to ourselves, our attention is withdrawn from other things. This is the practice. But many people think, because it is said that we have witnessed, so I'm witnessing everything. Therefore, this is like Vipassana meditation in Buddhism. You're, you're witnessing all, this, um, all that's happening. You're witnessing the breath. You're witnessing the sensations in the body. You're witnessing the thoughts in the mind. This is all very good as a, as, a, as a form of meditation, as an exercise. It is, has a certain therapeutic effect. It may even have a purifying effect on the mind, but it's not our aim. Our aim is not just to calm down the mind. Our aim is to know who am I. What is the use of having a calm mind? The mind itself is the problem. We, we are not seeking just a, a quiescence of mind. We are seeking Manonasa, annihilation of mind, eradication of ego. That alone is the solution.
0: Michael, time's running out. Thank you so much for that answer. Thank you. And for um, Mukta's two questions too about it. You you hit about every point I can think of. And I'm always intrigued by the word annihilation, but that's literally what Ramana meant. Before we end, we have time for maybe one last question. Can I just ask, Mukta,
1: were you, was that a satisfaction? Factory answer yes it it helps me
4: to um I, I, I wouldn't lie it's not hundred percent satisfactory but it, it is like it helps me that okay I have to get established really in that 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 much I understand from there um for sure um yeah the oh yeah
1: not nothing <laughs> is satisfactory other than knowing and being what we actually are that's what Bhagavan
0: is pointing at. And uh, this is from Louisa, who's got his hand up there. Ask what's on your mind to Michael right
3: now. Thank you so much, Michael, for doing this and for this group. And what I'm trying to understand is I find myself thinking that I'm the doer. I'll do something and then I'll think that I did it. And if you could help me understand who the doer is. And also I'm trying to understand the not- and how that relates to the doer.
1: The not is ego. That is, as I as I mentioned earlier, ego is a a, a conflation of the fundamental awareness I am, which is such it, and the body, a form of five she's, which is jada. Jada means it's not aware. So when these two things are conflated, it is called Chit Jada Granti. That is, it is the knot formed by the entanglement of Chit and Jada. Chit, as such, is never entangled, but in the view of ego, we we the Chit are uh, seem to be entangled. So it's not the it's not the It's not the awareness in its pure condition that is entangled. It is ego that is entangled. So the not is ego. Um, The doer is ego. Why is the doer ego? Because there are three instruments of action body, well, let's say mind, speech, and body. All action begins with the mind. And uh, the act, the, the activity of the mind leads to activity of speech and body. So the, because we identify ourselves as this mind, speech, and body, the actions that are done by mind, speech, and body, we experience as, I am doing this. And as Bhagavan says in verse 38 of Uludunapdu, if we are the doer of actions, we will have to experience the resulting fruit. If When one knows oneself. By investigating who is the doer, in other words, who is this ego, this I, who is aware of itself as I am doing this, the doership will depart, and all the three karmas will come to an end. So, so long as we rise as ego, we are the doer. But the doer is not what we actually are. Ego is the doer. We are the pure being, the satchit. Does that help to clarify at all? Or is that a bit too, have I get, because I tried to give it in a compact way, but um, do you, what, would you like me to elaborate upon that a little more?
3: So if a poem is written, sometimes when a poem is written, I feel like I try to be open and it just kind of comes through. I feel like I don't really have much to do with it. And I'm just trying to understand that if how that happens.
1: Yes, but many things that we do, we feel something is doing through us, but still at the same time we feel we are doing, because it's done through this body and mind, and because the body and mind uh, 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 we experience as ourself, we are not actually the doer, but we seem to be the doer because of our identification with this body and mind. Okay. Thank and you.
3: Before,
1: Because we experience ourselves as the doer, we have to experience the consequences, because doership and experiencership go hand in hand.
0: Thank you again, Louisa. We have some excellent uh, material from you that you sent me, and we won't have time to do it today, but we'll get to it a month from now, on the first Sunday of April. And I think we can squeeze in Michael in our 12 minutes.
1: uh, Uh, Can I um, just say, can I just answer one thing in this connection? Um, In your question, you referred to a video, which is a reading of letter number 47 from Suri Nagama's book, uh, Letters from Sri Ramanashram. Um, In the online version that I have, it is on pages 79 to 81. And on page 80, it is recorded as if Bhagavan said, the self does not do anything but appropriate to itself all these acts. The self is put with a capital S, implying our real nature. Our real nature does not do anything, but it does not appropriate, appropriate to itself these acts. What identifies itself as I am the doer is that which takes itself to be the body. That is not our real nature. That is e- our self as ego. So, as we actually are, we don't do anything. But when we rise as ego, we identify ourselves with this mind, speech, and body, and therefore we experience the actions of mind, speech, and body as our actions. That is what Bhagavan would have meant there, but it's just not been
0: recorded very clearly. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the problem, which you talked about earlier, the translations. It might not just be the it's, It's partly
1: the translation, it's partly the
0: understanding of the recorder. Right. That's what I was getting at. Yeah, yeah. That can happen anytime we read yeah. anything about
1: Ramana, yeah, yeah. except Ramana's own words. Most of these books, though Bhagavan was speaking mostly in Tamil and a little bit in Telugu or Malayalam, most of the talks, um, uh, day by day, Maharsha's Gospel, were all recorded in English. Um, Maharsha's Gospel was the only one that came out in Bhagavan's lifetime and was simultaneously translated back into Tamil. Uh, the original language in which Bhagavan said it. But even that, it's a nice book, Maharsha's Gospel. It's a very useful book. There's a lot of useful ideas. But even that is not the, the perfect recording. In the yeah. case of letters from Sri Ramanashram, Suri Nagama, who recorded it, didn't know English. She, she knew a little bit of Tamil, but her mother tongue was Telugu. So she... She followed what was happening in the hall. She talked to Bhagavan in Telugu, and Bhagavan replied to her in Telugu, Um, and she recorded in Telugu and sent the letters to her brother. Her brother later translated into English. Mm -hmm. So we don't know to what extent it's her brother's translation, to what extent it's her recording. But um, So it's not exactly what Bhagavan said. So all these books there's a lot of useful things in these books, but we have to read them all, take them all with a pinch of salt. We need to try to, we, we need to understand Bhagavan's, the, the basic principles of Bhagavan's teachings, which we can find in his own works, works like Nana, Who Am I?, uh the for 40 verses, Upadesha Undia the 30 verses, um, Amma Vidde, the Song on the uh, Science of Self, and Arunakya's Stuttipanjikam, the five hymns. These are the original writings of Bhagavan. These contain the basic principles of Bhagavan's teachings. If we, if we absorb the, and assimilate these basic principles, then we can read books like talks and other books, such books, and we can, we can sort out the, the
0: grain from the chaff. That's great. And he was alive in my lifetime. In 1950, he died, Ramana. So yeah, yeah. it wasn't that many years ago, raised as some here might have been, as I was a Christian, we're used to the conflicts in the language of the Bible, of the New Testament, from the apostles. And uh, it, the argument could go on endlessly. Uh, let's try to squeeze in, Vish, if you promise to be short with your question. We'll try oh, your, yes. I'll try. Hand. Yeah, I'll try my best.
5: I'm I actually audible... Uh... Me? Ed, am I am I actually audible? Am I audible? Yes, we can hear you. We can hear. Oh, okay, great, great. Okay, yeah. So, so the question I have is right. All of us have questions about actually understanding the process, understanding all the aspects of his uh, teachings and so on. And then, uh, as soon as uh, one of the questions is answered, our our intellect okay comes up with uh, more and uh, more questions. I remember when uh, one of the talks uh, Bhagavan had mentioned that. Uh, why don't you do inquiry to uh, to find answer to that question so so my question is uh, since all of us ask you know questions all the time is it more productive to just try to do self inquiry than try to focus on uh, getting answers to thousands and thousands of questions which uh, keep on okay coming from us you know um, great great question michael
1: the process of going of learning of going deep is Called sravana, manana, nidityasana. Sravana means literally means hearing. That means reading or hearing all these, uh, the basic principles of (laughs) Bhagavan's teachings. Manana means thinking about them deeply, making sense of them. That is, it's one thing to read something, but do we actually understand it? So we need to think about it and think about why Bhagavan said like this here and he said like that there. What is the connection between it? So manana is necessary. Both shravana and manana are necessary, but they are not sufficient. What is important is nidityasana. Nidityasana literally means deep contemplation. In the context of Bhagavan's teachings, nidityasana means contemplating on ourselves, in other words, self-investigation, this is the But The real clarity comes from the practice of self-investigation. But of course, we, we won't be able to investigate ourselves unless we've understood correctly. If I haven't understood, but I'm not this body or mind or any of these things, I may be attending to thoughts thinking I'm attending to myself. In fact, many people say, attend, uh, uh, watch yourself, watch your thoughts. In the same breath, they will say it. But watching your thoughts is not watching yourself, it's watching something other than yourself. So we need to have a clear understanding. So it's the Sravana and Manana are necessary. The Nidityasana is most important, the practice. The more we go deep in the practice, the more we will get from our Sravana Manana, because for example works like uh, Nana who am I and uludu Napadu, and such works I have been studying for um in a few years' time it'll be fifty years that is I first came to by in nineteen seventy six so that's forty seven years ago now um so um uh um, uh, uh, uh we uh, Though I've been studying these things, I'm still learning from them, not that I'm getting new information, but as we go deeper in the practice, what Bhagavan says becomes more and more meaningful to us. We understand what it is he's saying, what is the implication of what he's saying. So the sravana manana nidityasana is what is most important, but I mean the most important of all is the nidityasana. That is the support for that is the manana sravana manana. So where does asking asking questions come in? That happens at the level of sravana and maybe a little bit at the level of manana. When we're trying to make sense of it, we ask questions, but we it's it, there's no wrong in asking questions, but we shouldn't always depend upon others to provide the answers for us. We should try to think about it and understand the answers ourselves. Most of the questions that arise arise because people haven't read Bhagavan closely enough and haven't thought closely enough about it. So, and I don't. I would never discourage people. Asking questions because it is that is part of a learning process. But we we shouldn't re- just rely on others telling us everything. We need to try to find the answers ourselves. We find the answers both in Bhagavan's words and within ourselves by looking within more and more and more. Is that a useful answer, Vish?
5: Oh uh, yes, yes. So the but then the emphasis is to continually do the practice. But then if we have any questions, I mean, then we can ask, right? Yeah, but, yeah, then, but then it has to be accompanied by uh, continuous, okay, practice, right? Practice uh, and also, yeah. and the practice
1: shouldn't, we, we can't do the practice in isolation. The practice is supported by the Sravana Manana. By often reading Bhagavan's teachings, it helps to clarify what is the practice and it helps to encourage us to put it into practice. That is, when there are so many interesting things to do, why should I just be attending to myself? We need a lot of encouragement, because the nature of the mind is to go outward, seeking so many interesting things in this world. So it, it's not the nature of the mind to take, superficially we say, oh, I want to know who am I? But do we really want to know who am I? If we really wanted to know who am I, we would attend to ourselves alone. The very fact that we our mind keeps on wandering away towards other things means we're more interested in those other things than we are in knowing who am I. So, Bhagavan's teachings are a great support. By often reading his teachings, thinking about his teaching, it encourages us uh, to go with him more and more and more. So, we we shouldn't um, we shouldn't think, but. We've understood everything, so we can. We all we have to do is practice. But our practice is supported. If you, if you've been given a map, you don't. And you suppose you want to travel to some foreign country you've never been before. You've been given a map. Do you just read the map and say, "Okay, now I've understood. I can throw away the map. Let me go to that country." When you go to the country, you're not going to remember everything in the map. The map will not be so, when you read the map, it wasn't so meaningful to you. If you take the map along with you, Then when you travel, you're going, oh, this is what, this uh, sign here, this means this forest, this means that river, this is what it looks like. So the map becomes alive to us when we actually visit the place that is depicted on that map. Bhagavan's teachings are like that. The teachings become more and more meaningful to us the deeper we go within. So we shouldn't just think, "I've, I've studied Bhagavan's teachings, I've understood everything, therefore I can discard Bhagavan's teachings. I remember... When I was in the early years when I was in Tiruvannamalai, this is back in 76, 77, 78, there was one gentleman from Andhra Pradesh. He was a middle-aged man. He had come and he he would spend all available hours sitting in Bhagavan's old hall meditating. I think he must have been there at least 12 to 16 hours a day. He was sitting there meditating. And he once told me but he, had, he never read anything. He, he had read Bhagavan's teachings. After reading Bhagavan's teachings, he threw away his glasses because he understood he didn't need to read anything further. So he was going on. Um, after some time, very sadly, he lost his mental balance, and we never saw him again after that. So we, we, need, to, we need to be practical in these things. If we we are pushing ourselves without the correct understanding, we'll be going down the wrong path. If we are correctly following Bhagavan's path, we will never lose our balance of mind because we are tending to the the source of all clarity. So the, the best therapy for any mental disturbance is this practice of self-investigation. So the fact that he lost his mental balance means that he wasn't correctly following, he hadn't correctly understood. He thought he had understood and he was um, blindly trying to put it into practice without correctly understanding. That is why often reading or listening to, or uh, and m- most important, not just merely reading and Thinking about it carefully, trying to understand it, that is most important. That is a great support for the practice. Of course, nothing, no amount of sravana manana can be a substitute for the practice. The practice is what is most important. But the greatest support, the greatest aid for the practice is the sravana manana. And that's where asking questions can come in. It can be useful. But we we should ask useful questions, questions that uh, help us to put it into practice, because that is the aim of Bhagavan's teaching. Bhagavan's teachings are a very simple, very deep, and very clear philosophy. But the aim of Bhagavan's teaching is not just to give us a nice philosophy. Uh, His philosophy has practical implications, so it's the practice that is the most important thing. Understanding the philosophy helps us, but the practice is what is most important.
4: Can I just ask a question about the practice itself?
1: Yes. We're out of time. Uh, no, let, let's just give, but this is most important. We've come to, a, finally, we've come to the most important thing of all, the practice. Can you make it
0: brief, Mukta?
4: Okay, sure. Uh, I just wanted to ask, like, I understand the inquiry of asking, who am I? Uh, me being new to this practice, i i I feel, um, I mean, it's like when I ask that question, I'm trying to sincerely ask and then the mind just goes in silence and it becomes in the present moment, observing the breath, observing everything that's happening. It just becomes quiet. So there's no real answer to it, but it, I I can feel that I'm in the awareness, but my real Mm -hmm. question is, um, uh, uh, when you're going through a stressful situation or scenario, that time does this inquiry work and should I do that? Because that time it becomes very challenging actually to inquire or is it a practice when you're calmer and things to ask that, um, you know, like who am I? That's that's my real question. Thank you. Thanks.
1: Uh, <laughs> okay. Um, asking who am I is not the practice of self-investigation. Bhagavan never said ask who am I, he said investigate who am I. If supposing Bhagavan gives you a book and tells you investigate what's written in this book, would you hold the book in your hand and start asking yourself what is written in this book, what is written in this book? that's not going to get you're not going to find out what's written in the book you if bhagavan said investigate what's written in the book so you open the book you read it and then you know what's written in it likewise when bhagavan said investigate who am i he didn't mean that we should ask the question who am i we should look deep within ourselves to see what we actually are if we are attending to thoughts or anything else that is not attending to ourself, because the thoughts are other than ourselves. So the practice is attending only to our own being, I am. That is the practice. In um, in the 16th paragraph of um, Nana, Bhagavan defines what is self-investigation. He says, the name atmavichara refers only to always keeping the mind in oneself, On oneself. In, in a, keeping the mind on something means attending to it. So we need to be attending to ourself, not attending to thoughts, not attending to anything that, or the breath or anything that appears and disappears. These are all anya, things other than ourself. We need to attend to ourself alone, to I alone. If you want to know who am I, what must you attend to? To I. That's the way to find out who am I.
4: So, when the thought comes, you're just like disregarding and coming back to your. Yes, empty don't worry space about of...
1: thoughts. In the sixth paragraph of uh, Nana, Bhagavan says, Etane erinum enna. How, however many thoughts rise, so what? <laughs> when the thoughts uh... rise, we should turn our attention back to ourselves. To whom do these thoughts rise? That doesn't mean we should ask to whom the thoughts arise. We should turn our attention back towards ourselves, the one to whom they arise. That's what Bowen means when he says investigate to whom. So oh, our either, the thoughts are not a problem. Our attending to the thoughts is a problem. We should be attending only to ourselves. So, so don't worry really about thoughts. Must. Let thoughts come or go. They're no concern okay. about our only concern is to attend to our own being. And so that, we asked, do, uh, that we can do that we can do in any circumstances. Are you aware I am only when you're in a calm state of mind? You're equally aware I am even when you're in an agitated state of mind. So if you have a love to attend to yourself, the state of the mind doesn't matter. It's Okay, when we're in an agitated state of mind, we tend to be more easily distracted. That's the only problem. But if we really want to hold on to self-attentiveness, we don't have to wait for the mind to become calm. The most effective way to calm down the mind is to hold on to self-attentiveness.
4: Okay, so don't even ask that question like uh, to who these thoughts are coming, because asking that brings me back to the subject, which is the I, right?
1: There's no harm in asking the question, but asking the question is not the investigation. Asking the question, if it helps to remind us to turn our attention back to ourselves, by all means ask the question, but don't take the asking of
0: the question to be the investigation. Uh, Melissa, I can always count on you for a closing thought.
3: Um, Just a question. How can we participate in the online um, discussion with Michael and Swami Sachidananda?
0: It's not a Anandana, it's Swami uh, Sarvapriyananda. That's
3: that's right, Sarvapriyananda, sorry. Yes, Yes. how can we do that?
1: We'll be live streamed on YouTube.
0: Two of the greatest people who speak with great clarity, so I'm looking forward to that too. That's on May 1st on YouTube, live. It's going to be 9 a.m. California time, which is convenient for us because it's noon New York time. I don't know what time it is in Europe. But it'll be it'll, well attended. It's it's five pm here. It's seven pm in um
3: in Finland where you. it is being hosted. Yeah. Please send. please send out the link. I'm so looking forward to it. Thank yeah. you.
0: And Michael, the very last word is yours. Ramana. <laughs> Perfect. That's what we do. Here. No more
1: Ramanaya. Ramanaya. Surrender to Ramana.